Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 143, Dr. Timothy Paul's In Defense of Conciliar Christology, Part 1. Dr. Timothy Paul is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He has also taught at the University of Notre Dame and at the University of St. Louis, where he earned his Master's in 2007 and his Ph.D. in 2008. His areas of specialization include analytic metaphysics, Thomistic philosophy, philosophy of religion, and analytic theology. He's published about two dozen articles and book chapters and encyclopedia entries on topics such as free will, truth maker theory, divine immutability, atheism, transubstantiation, and theories about incarnation. He's here with us today to talk about his 2016 book entitled In Defense of Conciliar Christology, a Philosophical Essay. In my judgment, this is the most important book in the literature on incarnation theories since Tom Morris's 1986 book, The Logic of God Incarnate. I think that Dr. Paul's book is going to change and to advance the discussions in some interesting ways. Dr. Paul, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Paul, in this book you're very specific about what you are and what you are not trying to accomplish. What is the goal of this book? I'm trying to show that the existing philosophical arguments against a certain traditional view of Christology fail to show that that Christology is inconsistent or incoherent. And the Christology in question is something that I've called conciliar Christology. And I stipulate the definition of that term to be the first seven ecumenical councils from First Nicaea in 325 to Second Nicaea in 787. All the claims about Christ in those councils put them together, tie a bow around them, call it conciliar Christology, and I want to argue that all the philosophical objections to that conjunction of claims fail. So you're not getting into arguing from the Bible to this type of Christology, and you're not really even trying to argue for it, except insofar as someone accepts those counsels? That's right. It's a, it's a wholly conditionalized operation. Suppose, for argument's sake, these counsels get it right. What can we show from them to see if there's an entailment that's inconsistent or contradictory or incoherent? As you note, it's right, I'm not even talking about scriptural reason for the conciliar Christologies being true or scriptural arguments against its truth. The whole goal is just to show that here's a set of claims and no one has yet shown them to be inconsistent. Dr. Paul, can you briefly recap these seven ecumenical councils and briefly highlight their central contributions to Christology? Sure. They start with the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD. All these dates will be AD dates. And there the question was, what's the ontological status of the son? What sort of thing, if you will, is he? Is he a creature? Is he one in being with the father? Is he truly God? There, the conciliar fathers came together and claimed that he's truly God. He's one in being with the Father. It's where we get the term homoousia. So that's the first one. These are all councils held in the East, I should say, too, all in the Eastern Church. At some of these, there were a few Westerners, 
uh, at some, there were no Westerners. So this next council, the Council of Constantinople, the first council of Constantinople in 381, again took the so-called Arians as their target, those who denied that Christ was in fact God. And they claimed that he's truly God, the Holy Spirit is truly God. And in fact, the creed we get today, we call it the Nicene Creed, but it's a creed that's put together from these two councils, the Nicene Council, or the Council of Nicaea, and the First Council of Constantinople. Third comes the Council of Ephesus in 431, and that's where Nestorius is condemned, and Cyril saves a day, so to speak, for the church, at least from a certain vantage point. There, Nestorius had been claiming that Mary, the mother of God, wasn't in fact the mother of God. Mary was uh, what he called the Christ-bearer, Christotokos, but she didn't bear God in her womb. She wasn't the Theotokos. And that view is problematic for Orthodox Christianity because Orthodox Christianity claims anything that truthfully happened to that body of Christ's, anything that truthfully happened to the thing that was assumed by the second person of the Trinity, truly happened to that second person as well. So if, as Leo later says in the fourth council, if you hang that human nature on a cross and it bleeds, then God is hanging on a cross and God is bleeding. But then by the same token, if that human nature gestates in the womb of a virgin, then God is in there gestating in the womb of a virgin. So Nestorius denied this claim that God was in the womb of the virgin and the church came together to exile him. He was exiled from the empire as a consequence of this and stripped of his patriarchal role in Constantinople. So let's just briefly recap who those three characters that you mentioned are, Nestorius, Cyril, and Leo. Nestorius was a patriarch of Constantinople. Right around 431 is when the council was held. Cyril was from a place called Alexandria in Egypt. The Alexandrians and those in Constantinople had been sparring one another for quite some time. John Chrysostom was a earlier patriarch of Constantinople, and he was exiled by a former patriarch of Alexandria. So there's lots of bitterness between these two seas. Mm-hmm. This was their second or third time coming to spar. And again, the patriarch of Constantinople was ousted by the machinations of Cyril of Alexandria. And I might add Cyril, though I think a doctor of the church, Cyril uh, did not play fairly in many of these fights. In fact, he paid off the emperor with some obscene amount of money to side with, with his side of this debate. It was much more like uh, Trumpian politics than you might imagine a bunch of holy bishops getting together to speak in a council might look like. But in fact, these councils were just rife with all sorts of, all sorts of bishops behaving badly. <laughs> Leo was Bishop of Rome. He was the Pope. He isn't so important for this council from 431 Ephesus, but in the next council... Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, Leo writes a really famous work called the Tome of Leo, written to Flavian, who was patriarch, I think at the time of Constantinople. And there he argues for Christ's having two complete natures, one divine nature, one human nature, and they're each complete and whole and entire in their own way. Everything that comes with human nature, Christ had. Everything that comes with divine nature, Christ had. There, his case is almost exclusively a scriptural case. He gives a scriptural case for the claim that what you have there is truly a man, and what you have there is truly God. And the church came to accept this Tome of Leo, as it's called, in the Fourth Ecumenical Council in 451, held at Chalcedon. 
So at the time, there was an ongoing dispute between people who wanted to say that the incarnate Christ had one nature and people who wanted to say that the incarnate Christ had two natures. And sometimes historians, they think that the two-nature view was more popular at Antioch. So there's the Antiochene school they talk about. And then there's the Alexandrian school, which wanted to say that there was one nature. And so this Pope Leo was essentially siding with the two-nature side. Yeah, that's how I understand uh, what scholars say as well. I'm not so sure about it, and this is coming from a philosopher, so if you have a salt shaker next to you, pour all the grains of salt out when I say what I'm going to say here. But I've read a bit of Emperor Justinian, and Emperor Justinian was a follower of Cyril. I mean, much later, he was at the Fifth Ecumenical Council, so over 100 years after Cyril's death. But he was trying to be a good Cyrillian, and he argues that Cyril thought that there were two natures. If that's the case, then you have the main proponent of Alexandrian theology also affirming a two-nature view and not a one-nature view. I don't know if he gets it right, but there he is doing it pretty early in the church. I thought that Cyril wanted to say that after the union, there was one nature, but uh, this could be to some extent a dispute about terminology. Mm -hmm. So why don't we go on to just say briefly what the result of Chalcedon was. So Chalcedon then is the fourth council, the fourth ecumenical council of the church. And the important things it did was define that Christ has two natures, one divine, one human. They don't separate, they don't mingle with one another. They're whole and entire. Chalcedon gives us the Tome of Leo, but also the definition of faith of Chalcedon, which is a, a prominent and strong definition of faith from the early church. Chalcedon also had the most bishops there. I think between 500 and 600 bishops were there. And it was more ecumenical in the sense of being universal than previous councils were. For instance, there were Western men there to lead the council that the Pope had sent. So it spoke with a more uh, universal voice than some of the previous councils, which had very few or no Westerners at them did. The fifth council of these seven councils was held at Constantinople as well. It's the second council of Constantinople in 553. The primary reason for holding this council was to anathematize or claim beyond the pale some views of certain influential thinkers. So one thing that was anathematized was the claim that Christ didn't have a human body and a human soul. You got to think he did have both those, they claimed. Another thing anathematized was the claim that he was not truly God, or that he wasn't a member of the Holy Trinity. And they also gave my very favorite anathema out of all the anathemas of the church, they anathematize anybody who claims Christ didn't have two nativities, one from the Father outside of time, the Greek there is Akronos, and another from the holy and glorious ever-Virgin Mary. That's their wording of it. So that's primarily what they do at that fifth council. They anathematize or safeguard certain claims made at earlier councils. The sixth council was also held at Constantinople from 680 to 681. Now, as I've mentioned, the previous councils said that Christ had everything a human has in virtue of having a human nature. And the question came up, well, do you have a human will in virtue of having a human nature? Does Christ have two wills, a divine will that he had eternally with the Father, and then in addition, an assumed human will, or just one will, that one divine will? And here the church answered that Christ has two wills. He has a human will and a divine will. And though they don't explicitly say he has two intellects, a human intellect and a divine intellect, I think all the arguments they give for the human will being there 
apply equally well to the human intellect being there too. And then finally, the seventh council held for a second time at Nicaea in 787 was called primarily to discuss the veneration of icons. When one venerates an icon, as today in the East and the West, the Orthodox and Catholics do, and the question was asked, when one venerates an icon, is one committing idolatry? And the answer there was no, to venerate an icon is not to commit idolatry, said the early church. Well, early as 787, that's what they said in 787. There's very little new Christology done at this seventh council, but I include it for two reasons. One reason is that these first seven councils are affirmed by large swaths of Christians. In fact, the Orthodox and the Catholics believe that they were safeguarded by the Lord so that there's no error in them. And many Protestants affirm them too. So even if the seventh council doesn't include new Christology, it's still one of the councils that's traditionally been viewed as a source of Christology. So that's one reason to accept it. But a second is the council, in summarizing what's happened elsewhere, it gives what I take to be the most clear expression of the problem I want to discuss in the book, the problem of how can there be apparently incompatible predicates true of the same thing at the same time. Here's what the council says. In fact, this is a quote from the Eighth Council talking about this Seventh Council. But they say the following. They say, quote, We also know that the Seventh Holy and Universal Synod held for a second time at Nicaea, taught correctly when it professed one and the same Christ as both invisible and visible Lord, incomprehensible and comprehensible, unlimited and limited, incapable and capable of suffering, inexpressible and expressible in writing, end quote. And there, that's just enough to give a logician a bloody nose. That is crazy. That's five apparently incompatible pairs of predicates all said of the same thing, they say the one and the same Christ, all set of them in a row. You can't get a worse and more odious claim than five apparently contradictory claims said in a row like this. And so for the conciliar Christologists, what you have to do is figure out what's going on here. Could they really be so blind as to see that they're contradicting themselves? If not, if they really saw it, what were they thinking? And if they weren't trying to contradict themselves, what's going on here? How do we make sense of them having these 10 predicates in two pairs, seemingly contradictory. And it's the burden of your book in the last portion of it to say what the proper definitions are for each of those pairs. And we'll actually get into that, I think, in the portion of our interview that's for next week. Now that we're on to definitions, Dr. Paul, it seems like the precise definition of two terms is going to be central to the claims of conciliar Christology, the definition of the term person and of the term nature. So let's talk about those. Sure. Let's start with person. So to define the word person, I'll need to use another philosophical term of art. And so I'll define that term first and then use it to define person. That term is supposit or hypostasis, hypostasis being the Greek term used, supposit being the Latin term used for the same concept. So what's a supposit? It's a substance that fulfills certain conditions, 
and the most germane to this discussion, to be a supposite, you have to be a substance that's the biggest unified whole there. And here's what I mean. Suppose you think that there's two things, my top half and my bottom half. So there's me, the guy, Tim Paul. I'm an organism. Just assume I'm, I'm an organism. And I have two halves, the top half and the bottom half. And those two halves are themselves things in their own right. Well, if you chop off my bottom half, I mean, please don't, but if you were to chop off my bottom half, for a while at least, maybe a little while, I'd still exist. And so here I am, this thing composed of two other things. But those two other things, at least on the view I'm putting forward here, they don't fulfill the conditions for being what's called a supposite. And they're not supposites because, as we can see, they aren't the biggest unified whole there. There's a bigger unified whole than just my bottom half. It's the whole organism. There's also a bigger unified whole than just the top half. That's the whole organism. So to be a supposite, at least uh, in this Christological discussion, is to be a substance that's the biggest unified whole there. That's the idea anyway. The bottom half of me is something we can think of as sustained by the whole me. There's the whole me that exists, the whole organism. And that bottom half is something that doesn't really exist in its own right. It exists as a component or aspect of the whole substance, which is me. It's that last bit, not being sustained by anything, which is true of me and is true of the person of Christ. That last bit negated, so being sustained by something. That's true of my lower half. And on conciliar Christology, it's also true of Christ's human nature. So my lower half is something that doesn't exist in its own right. It's a part or a component, and it's not the biggest thing there. It's sustained by another bigger thing. Likewise, Christ's human nature on conciliar Christology is something that's not the largest unified whole there, and it's sustained by another bigger thing, that bigger thing being the person of the word on conciliar Christology. So then, what's a supposite? You can think of it like this. A supposite in this context is a substance that exists and isn't sustained by another thing. You give the same definition to supposite and to hypostasis. Mm -hmm. And in some literature, you see hypostasis being used as synonymous with person. Mm -hmm. But we're about to hear a different definition for person. You note in the book that this concept of a supposite is put into play by Aquinas and Occam in the High Middle Ages, but your claim is that this is not explicitly formulated by the councils, but it's something that's necessary to understand what they're saying. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They don't give us a definition of these terms, but given how they use them, I think we can figure out what it is they meant by these terms. Or to be a person, then, is to be a supposite of a certain type. It's to be a supposite with a rational nature. That's why I think some people claim that a supposite is the same thing as a person. It's not quite true on my reading and on what Aquinas says and other people say that they're the same thing. It's better to say that a person is a species or a type of supposite. It's a type of supposite you get when you have a rational nature there. So it's akin to saying that thing's a dog, that thing's a mammal. You can use dog and mammal both to refer to Fido, but they refer to it in slightly different ways. Likewise with supposite and person, I think. So there could be supposita that are not persons? That's right. Fido, I think, is a good example. Fido's a dog. It's the biggest unified whole there. 
it's not sustained by anything in this particular sense of being sustained. And so it fulfills the conditions for being a supposit or a hypothesis. Concerning natures, then, I just told you that a person is a supposit with a rational nature. We should say, well, what's a nature? Here, there are two main ways of understanding nature in the philosophical literature on Christology. One way is they call it the abstract view of natures. And this is, if you think of Plato and his forms, you get a pretty good idea of what sort of thing they're pointing to. Plato thought forms were things that could be instantiated or had by many. They're shareable. There's the form of goodness, and then there's individual good things. There's the form of equality, and then there's equal sticks and stones. Well, likewise here, there's the form of human nature. Maybe call it humanity. And then, aside from that, you have individual particular humans like me and you. The abstract view, then, of natures claims that when the councils talk about natures, they mean these shareable, Plato-like entities. There's a different view, though. It's called the concrete view of natures. And there, the claim is that when the councils talk about Christ's human nature, they aren't talking about a shareable, platonic, abstract entity. They're talking about a particular, concrete, flesh-and-blood entity. Continuing with the analogy from Plato, I said you have the good and then individual good things. Think here you have humanity, the abstract nature, and then all those individual human things are concrete natures. I'm a, I have a concrete nature, this flesh-and-blood composite. You have one. Christ had one as well. And those things, those individual instances, those flesh-and-blood, body-and-soul composites, those are the things that are concrete natures. So the question here is, when the councils talk about natures, Christ has two natures, a human and a divine nature, what do they mean to say? Do they mean to say that he has a divine nature, which is a property or set of properties that he instantiates, and he has a human nature, which is a, likewise a property or share or set of properties that he instantiates? Or do they mean that he has this concrete human nature, this flesh and blood thing, this body-soul composite? In my view, in my reading of the texts, they clearly meant that he had a concrete flesh and blood body-soul composite. That's the thing they're referring to when they say that he had a human nature. And I've got, I guess, two arguments we can give for it. If you'd like to, to go into the arguments from, it's proof texting, the arguments from the conciliar texts for thinking that they in fact thought that the assumed nature of Christ is a concrete thing. Yeah, let's hear it. This seems important. Yeah, well, I think so too. <laughs> Here's one of those arguments. I call it the Leonine argument, primarily because you find it most clearly in the texts of Leo that I mentioned are from the Fourth Ecumenical Council, the Tome of Leo. Leo says a lot of things about that nature that Christ assumed. He says that human nature is the sort of thing that can hang on a cross, it can be pierced, it can weep, it can feel pity, and it can say, the Father is greater than I. Those are all things he explicitly predicates, not of Christ as a whole, well, of Christ as a whole as well, but also of this particular human nature. The human nature hangs on the cross. The human nature is pierced. It weeps. But now consider again the two options we have for types of natures, abstract and concrete. No abstract nature, no thing like Plato's form of the good, no shareable, instantiable entity is the sort of thing that can weep, can be pierced, can hang on a cross. And so they're predicating of this human nature things you just couldn't say of an abstract nature. 
those things are also in tradition called universals, and they're traditionally thought to be unchangeable and to not have causal powers. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. They can't cause or be caused. I mean, or they can't be、uh, changed by anything else. Yeah. So that abstract thing,、uh, an abstract nature, just isn't the right sort of thing to have these predicates set of it. But the concrete nature is. So I think that's good evidence that they had a concrete sort of view in mind and not an abstract sort of view in mind. Okay, the second one. I call this the Cyrillic argument primarily here because the argument comes from Cyril's texts in the Third Council, the Council of Ephesus. He says that our human nature was hypostatically united to a divine nature in the incarnation, and he paraphrases that human nature in the following way. He refers to the human nature as quote, "flesh enlivened by a rational soul," end quote, and by quote, "a holy body rationally ensouled." Later, the councils will call it human flesh, which is possessed by a rational and intellectual soul. So the point here is this: when talking about that nature, the councils will paraphrase human nature in those three ways I just mentioned: flesh enlivened by a rational soul, and the other two. But again. From similar reasoning from last time, that's just not the sort of thing you can call an abstract nature. Abstract natures are, as you pointed out, immutable. They lack causal powers. They aren't composed of multiple entities, and they definitely aren't composed of meaty things like bodies. So, for the second reason, the way they paraphrase language of the human nature, I think they just couldn't have had in mind an abstract entity like a Platonic universal, and it seems to me pretty clear they had in mind a concrete thing. Which I might add is something that very, very many people in the tradition have thought. In the book, I give lots and lots of quotations from early church fathers and medievals who claim that the human nature of Christ is something concrete and not something abstract. Dr. Paul, many Christians have thought that the incarnation is simply God coming to indwell and live through a human body. In your view, is this correct? I don't think so, or at least I wouldn't put the view that way. I think, and this is the conciliar view here, that the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, assumed a composite of a created body and a soul. That is, he came into a particular sort of relation with a body-soul composite. And it wasn't merely an indwelling, as say the Holy Spirit indwells in believers. You can see it's not an indwelling in the following way: when the Holy Spirit indwells in a believer, the things that happen to that believer aren't rightly predicated of the Holy Spirit. For instance, if that believer were hung on a cross and pierced, you couldn't say that the Holy Spirit was hung on the cross and pierced. So indwelling, at least if I'm understanding it correctly. Is insufficient to capture the sort of claims conciliar Christology wants. It wants a much more robust relation between the second person of the Trinity and the thing that person assumed—the created human nature of Christ. Secondly, too, it sounds when you say that God came to indwell and live through a human body, it sounds like there's no soul there, no human soul there doing anything. And that too, I think, is contrary to conciliar Christology. 
the fathers say, I think I gave three or so quotations just a bit ago, the fathers say that Christ assumed flesh enlivened by a rational soul. Now, they don't tell you what they mean by the word soul there. And so there might be wiggle room to, say, give a deflationary account of soul and maybe try to be a materialist about the human person and the human soul. Maybe you could do that. But you got to at least have something there that plays the role of soul in order to be consistent with what conciliar Christology says. By deflationary account, you mean a view where the soul, I mean, one mean of soul is principle of life, but the thing that makes alive, but that's not a thing. It's not an entity. It's not a mind is a different way to put it. Yeah. To have soul is just to be alive, something like that. Yeah, to have the right sort of internal operations and such is what it is to have a soul. And if you say that sort of thing, maybe you can say all we have here is material bits and components. And when you arrange them just so or just right, we can say there's a soul there. But really, it's just the material stuff all the way down. And about indwelling and living through, I mean, even if we tightened that up and said, well, the incarnation is God coming to be embodied in a particular body, that wouldn't be enough either, right? Because of what you just said about there has to be a human soul there in some sense. Yeah, that's right. I could see someone saying such a thing and meaning it in a way that's consistent with conciliar Christology, but I would, I guess I would caution that you should probably say it more explicitly so that it's clear that there's a soul involved there too. So one concern that was always a part of this tradition that we're talking about is that Christ should really be human, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Imagine that a demon could come into you and kick your soul out. Get out of here. I live here now. <laughs> that wouldn't make the demon a man. Right. It would mean that there was a demon that had taken a human body and sort of might look like a man from the outside. People would be like, why is Tim Paul so mean? He seemed like a nice guy before. <laughs> but they would see this bearded man, you know, now cursing and I don't know what. Uh-huh. Saying all kinds of terrible things and growling like a lion. Uh, I don't know. Anyway. This, this sounds like <laughs> but, me when I'm trying to get my kids in bed. Right. Yeah. They might think that's actually happened. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so if God were the Logos, the, the Son of God took a body, arguably that wouldn't make him truly a human. It would make him look like one. Yeah, I like that argument. That's good. So the way they try to ensure that there's a real person here is say, well, there's another component. And I mean, surely these are some kind of substance dualists, right? I mean, that's a background assumption in this time period. You don't have materialists about human persons. I mean, that's not a popular view. Sure. With early Christianity. So well, then they think there has to be this extra substance, right? The soul. Yeah, I'm not sure if they'd have to be substance dualists. They could be composite dualists of a sort where they don't think the soul or the body are substances in their own right, but only the composite is a substance. Like a hylomorphic sort of view. But a hylomorphic view where the soul could exist on its own, at least potentially. Yeah, yeah you have to be able to say Christ's soul descended into the underworld for three days. Yeah, and they probably believe in the intermediate state. Yeah, now we think that's probably right. People would argue about whether to call that substance dualism or, or an alternative to substance dualism. I guess it depends how much Cartesianism you're trying to, mm -hmm. to put into the term.
Dr. Paul, other Christians have thought that the Incarnation is when God mysteriously combined together with a man, living together ever after in cooperation with that man, namely Jesus. Is this how you interpret conciliar Christology? No, no, I think this one isn't, isn't the right way to go either. So it sounds as if there's a separate man there. That guy's name is Jesus. And the son joined in some cooperative endeavor, some cooperative union with that particular man. But on the contrary, conciliar Christology teaches that the man Jesus, the thing I name with the term the man Jesus, is truly the second person of the Blessed Trinity. There are these old dogmatic manuals, and I love these manuals. In them, they ask questions concerning whether or not you can say certain things of Christ. So, for instance, they say, can you say Christ was born of the Virgin Mary or God was born of the Virgin Mary? Can you say that a man created the stars? And the answer to all three of those was, yeah, Christ was born of the Virgin, God was born of the Virgin, and a man created the stars. Those are all true claims. Now, of course, at the time of creation, it wasn't a man then, but you can point to a man, namely Jesus Christ, and say, that guy over there, that supposit, that person created the stars. So here, when I think about the way you asked the question, it sounds like there's this one man, he's just a regular man, he's not the star creator, and there's a second thing, God, and they live together in some sort of really intimate cooperative union, maybe a graced union. And I think that's just not what the conciliar fathers had in mind. It's not the case that there is a, a man, and then beside the man also, God. There's just one person there. If you have to use more than one finger to count the number of persons involved, consider Christology says you're doing it wrong. So one thing that you objected to about the question was, I made it sound like there was just this man, you know, walking down the street one day, and mm. then he, he gets combined somehow. What if it was changed to that there is a man, but at all times of this man's existence, he is in combination with the Logos. So there's never a time when they're part, and they have to cooperate. And whether you call the man Jesus or the whole thing Jesus, is that correct in your view? No, I guess I don't think there is ever a man from its first moment of existence that was united to the second person of the Trinity. It's true that there was a human nature that's created, came into existence, and at that first moment of existence was united to the second person of the Trinity. But I don't want to claim that human nature is a man because I think the word man carries along with it the connotation, maybe implication, of the thing referred to being a supposit. And it's false that the human nature of Christ is a supposit. And so I wouldn't want to say that it's a man. It's not a supposit, so it can't be a human person? Yeah, it has to be a supposit to be a person, because supposit is the genus under which person falls. And so if it's not a supposit at all, it couldn't be a person, and so it couldn't be a human person. Although at the time they didn't have the supposit terminology, they did at one point condemn the Antiochene bishop Theodore of Mopsuestia mm -hmm. for saying something very close to this, I think, that the word assumed a man and that there had to be a kind of, kind of he didn't put it this way, but a kind of interpersonal cooperation between mm -hmm. the two of them. That was a, an officially condemned view. Yeah, yeah. In fact, earlier I mentioned the influential thinkers at the Fifth Council that were condemned, and you've just pointed to one of them. Yeah, Theodore was one of the thinkers that they condemned at that council. 
Dr. Paul, there is now a pretty sizable literature in analytic theology where people are trying to show how traditional Christology is coherent, or at least to establish that it can't be proven incoherent. And in most of this literature, Christ's properties or attributes are discussed. For example, whether his having a divine nature demands that he's omniscient, while his having a human nature demands that he's not omniscient. But in your book, you buck this trend of dealing with properties or attributes, and instead you discuss things in terms of predicates, that is, items of language. Why do you do that? Hmm. Yeah, I can think of three reasons why I do that. The first is dialectical. What I'm attempting to do in the book is take all the claims made in Conciliar Christology and show that all the extant or existing objections to them that are philosophical in nature, those objections fail. Now to do that, I have to take that set of claims and protect or defend against the objections in that set of claims. And so there's a sense in which it's already a linguistic endeavor. I mean, I have uh, the articles of the creeds, and I'm trying to defend the creeds. The defense here is of linguistic items put together in a certain way. So one reason for focusing on the language instead of focusing on the ontology is because what I'm trying to defend is the consistency of a certain set of claims in the language. A second reason is, so far as I know, the councils are silent on the metaphysics of attributes or on a theory of under what conditions a predicate is apt of a thing. That is, the councils don't say that if Tim is human and Dale is human, then there must be one thing, humanity, shared by both, in virtue of which is true to say of each that he is a human. Nothing like that occurs. And so it seems to me that if you talk about properties and attributes here, if you start smuggling in metaphysical apparatus, you're going to find yourself having more there than you need. You're going to have ontological bits and components that aren't part of the councils and might even be contrary to what the councils say. So I didn't think I needed the language of properties or the the ontology here to solve the difficulties that, that people had put to conciliar Christology. And finally, I wanted the theology I give here to at least be consistent with classical theism and the other views these uh, fathers of the church were giving in their other writings. So one thing that's part of classical theism and oftentimes expressed by these same fathers of these councils is divine simplicity. They claim that in God there is no composition of any sort. But it seems to me if there are these ontological bits or components, call them properties, say being knowledgeable is a property that I have and that God has it, and in virtue of each of us having it, it's true to say that both God and I are knowledgeable. Well, if that's the case, then it looks to me like it runs afoul to divine simplicity, which has God having no metaphysical composition in any way. And so to at least keep the theory consistent with simplicity, I'm not here assuming simplicity, but at least to keep it consistent with divine simplicity, I didn't want to have to give a theory in the book or use a theory in the book that presupposed that God literally had properties in the same way other things literally have properties. So those three reasons. Dr. Paul, thanks for talking with us. Yes, thank you for having me. Again, the book is called In Defense of Conciliar Christology, a Philosophical Essay. If you want to find out more about Dr. Paul and his publications, you can visit his website at timpaul, that's P-A-W-L, dot wordpress dot com. 
Today's thinking music has been Recovered Memory by Admiral Bob. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing on social media like Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. And why not leave us a review at iTunes to help other people find out about the podcast. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.